Hello, and welcome to my favorite topic. <laughs> I hope you're ready for the next three to five business days of me talking about the Olympics. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to an extra special episode of 80% Mental. I'm Dr. Pete Olushaga, and this is a podcast all about the psychology of sport and performance. Um, at the time of recording, the podcast has just passed 40,000 downloads. So I just wanted to thank you. I, I was going to download a, um, a, a, an applause sound effect, but I don't need to now. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to give a, a shout out really to everyone who's listened, liked, shared, or otherwise supported the podcast. And that includes the incredible lineup of guests that I've just had the good fortune uh, to be able to speak to. Anyway, I thought that I was finished with series two, but then I got a text message that read something along the lines of, if you want to talk about the Olympics again, I'm totally down for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I should have known, really. Um, but I, I thought, yeah, okay, let's do it. So this is the super special bonus episode, Winter Olympics Review. And as if you couldn't guess, my first guest and the author of said text message is the one and only Dr. Leah Washington. Leah, welcome back again to 80% Mental. Thrilled, as always, to talk about my favorite topic. Of course. And if you've listened before, you'll know that Leah is a professor of sports medicine and sports psychology and just seems to have fallen into her role as 80% mental's resident Olympic expert. <laughs> um, I, I, I'm thinking about giving you your own bio on the website, to be honest. Amazing. I'm here for it. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually looking for a new co-host. So, you know, play your cards, right? Into it. I'm into it. But you'll have some competition for that role because it's also... My pleasure to welcome back. Somebody's looking very confused at the moment. Uh, again, to 80% Mental, Dr. Chelsea Day, sports psychologist at the Ohio State University. Chelsea, welcome back to 80% Mental. It was generous of you to say that it would be some competition. I'm here for the listening and add-ins, but there is a very clear winner on the resident uh, Olympic expert, and it's not me. <laughs> So we are recording this about a week or so after the end of the 2022 Winter Olympics. And there's just, there's so much to talk about. Um, but I like this from our last Olympic show that we did. And I like testing Leah's Olympic knowledge as well. So we're going to I start. have to caveat, I'm not as strong at the Winter Olympics as I am at the Summer Olympics. So we come but I'll, I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. No, 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 you can't, you can't say that now. You're the Olympic expert. That, that You sold yourself as that. No, I'm fucked. All of them. Don't Both. have caveats now. Um, okay, so Olympic facts. The very first Winter Olympic Games were held in... Ooh, the first ones were held in... Hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, Par Paris? Close. It was in France. They held in Chamonix in France in 1924. This is this is actually so. This is an incredible Olympic fact. I mean, I've sold it as incredible, but you know, uh, in 1964, <laughs> which was in 1964, was see. This is where I'm going to get all fucked up. 
64. <laughs> I'm trying to remember which one was which. Um, Innsbruck. Yeah, it was. Oh, okay, Olympic expert. Anyway, in 1964, the army had to deliver 50,000 cubic yards. And cubic yards is an odd measurement, by the way. Just want to <laughs> throw that in there. Nobody measures not if you, cubic Not yards. if you buy mulch. If you buy mulch in the U.S., cubic yards. I got you. I worked at a oh. farm store once. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay, fair enough. Every day's a school day. Um, <laughs> they had, the army had to deliver 50,000 cubic yards of snow because it just hadn't snowed enough in the lead-up to the games in Innsbruck. Oh, no. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you want some more Olympic facts? Yes. Mm -hmm. Of course you do. Uh, Deborah Thomas became the first black athlete to medal at the Winter Olympics uh, after she won bronze in the figure skating in 1998. 1998, of course, being... 98 was... Nagano. No. <laughs> no? No. 1998? I don't think so. 1998 was Nagano. I think you're thinking of 1988, which was Calgary. Did I say 1998? You did. God damn it. All right, 1988 then, which was in Calgary. You're right. Um... Do you want to know what's wild? Is that Canada has had two Winter Olympics. The United States has had four. And I feel like that is backwards. <laughs> Well, I, they should do something about that. Um, so do you know who the first black uh, athlete to win gold at the Olympics was? In any sport? In any sport. The, the Winter Olympics, I was talking about. I'd ask Chelsea if you have any idea, but I, I mean. Yeah, I thought about Googling it and then just like <laughs> pretending I knew it. Um, I respect the integrity of this show. I don't know. Okay. Do you want to know? Yes. It's Vonetta Flowers. Uh, and she won gold in the 2002 uh, speed skating. No, two woman bobsleigh. Oh, bobsleigh! Mm. Yeah, uh, 2002, which of course everybody knows was in. 2002 was in Salt Lake City. It was yes. Um, okay, a couple more Olympic facts for you. Uh, skeleton track in Beijing had the first ever 180 degree corner of any Olympic uh, Winter Games. So. I mean, that track was, was bonkers. Yeah, uh, it's fascinating. No. Um, and to, uh, okay, so this is a good one. Chelsea, you might be able to jump in on this one as well. So today, 12 countries have participated in every Winter Olympic Games. It's 12 countries, okay? I'm going to give you half of them because half of them are pretty obvious. Uh, so the United well, those States. those are the ones I should be able to get. Oh. <laughs> the United States. Wait, I got one. Okay, I'll give you that one. Any, any more? Canada? Canada, yeah. Norway? Sweden. Norway, Sweden, yeah. I was going to say Sweden. They felt like they would they would be there. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. England, France. France, yeah. Did you say England? Yeah. Great, Great Britain, yeah, I'll give you that. Great yeah. Britain. Yeah. There's a few more. Finland? Finland, yeah. Germany? No. No. No, surprisingly. Okay. Um, Italy. Yeah. Switzerland. Yeah. Um, Austria. Yeah. How are you doing this? What? <laughs> you got one more. Um, I'd be surprised, to be honest, if you got this one. Belgium? No. 
It's Hungary. Oh, Hungary. Uh, yeah. So the United States, Great Britain, Canada, Sweden, Norway, and Finland, Austria, France, Hungary, Italy, Poland, and Switzerland. The only country that's won at least one gold medal in every Winter Olympics is Norway. No. Fuck. I'm just talking with this. Canada? No. Not us. We're number one. We're number one. Oh, really? Us? Yeah, yeah USA, yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. And Obviously. Uh, last one, because I think this is probably getting slightly boring now for the people listening. Um, <laughs> the, out of 92 uh, Olympians returning to Team USA, uh, four uh, athletes will be competing, or sorry, four athletes just did compete in their fifth Winter Olympics. Can you name all four of them? Sean White. Mm -hmm. Mike Schuster. Mm, Carling. Yeah. John Schuster. John Schuster. Sorry. John Schuster. Um, Hillary Knight was in her fourth. Kendall Coyne? No. Oh, that's also four. Wasn't there a snowboarder? Mm hmm. Sean White. Uh, Wasn't there a female snowboarder? There was. (laughs) Oh, females. Oh, I'm not um, going to get a name, but Lindsay Jacob Ellis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And was it her? Uh, was it her partner, Nick Baumgartner? No, female skeleton. Oh, I can't think of her name. Katie Erlander. Erlander. Well, that's quite impressive, though. Five, five consecutive. That's so trains. many Olympics. It's so many Olympics. I mean, that's ridiculous. 2006, 10, 14, 18, and then obviously this year, 22. So the German speed skater in her eighth Olympics? Yeah. 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 How does that math even work? Wild. Okay, let's uh, let's move it on from <laughs> Olympic fact. <laughs> Uh, All right, I feel like I let you guys down on that one. Well, I mean, it's an area for improvement, you know? You just need to think of it that way. I gotta work on that. Come come back stronger. Pretty sure we'll be doing this again. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk um, about our just favorite moments from from the games. Like, what what were the things that stood out to you? Uh, Chelsea, I'm gonna come to you first. What what stood out? What was kind of your favorite moments of the games this time? I mean, even though I couldn't get all the names, um, I I was I thought it was really cool. I think the older I get, the cooler it is to see people like my age actually like doing elite <laughs> athletic things. As I feel like I'm on the back end of any uh, fast movement, uh, and so that just was really cool. It just made it a lot more relatable. I feel like a lot of times, you know, especially in these a lot of these winter sports. Um, I often feel like I'm just like old and not cool because they're they're really like cool sports. Like they're really cool sports and they're not sports that even exist for the most part where I live um, and where I grew up. And so, uh, I, I mean, that was probably like big picture. One of the coolest things for me is to see people like me out there um, doing really, really cool things. So that was kind of the big picture thing. Um, I, I really liked and and 
I mean, I know that I'm supposed to pick probably like more performancey things, but I really liked a lot of the coverage. And I mean, I was wrangling a toddler this year who has taken over all of our television um, programming because <laughs> I guess that's what happens um, when the toddler rules the house. But I thought the coverage was really cool and all of the different angles, instead of just seeing a lot of the coverage on major news stations, a lot of just the coverage of getting to see clips of really cool pieces of performance that maybe I would have missed even if I were watching the coverage throughout mm-hmm. social media, highlighting people who maybe wouldn't get primetime coverage or who wouldn't, I wouldn't see their performance because we only show Americans mostly over here. Um, and so that was just really neat to to be able to hop on social media and see, you know, names that I would never see, performances that I would never see, mm-hmm. um, and feel like I get to engage with those in a, in a new way. So I think for me, that was just a really different experience of this Olympic cycle is getting to see and, and access more coverage than I ever have given, you know, my move from seeing it on social media versus traditional television coverage. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the BBC's coverage over here was, was pretty good actually. And just being able to kind of dip in and out and see different things and see what I wanted to see rather than kind of just the, the, the sort of highlights packages. Um, Leah, what about you? What were your, some, what were some of your favorite moments? Yeah, I think some. I think one of my top favorite moments was watching Nathan Chen in men's figure skating. Um, he had such a disappointing Pyeongchang, and to come back and he just looked incredible. And it was really the first time that when I truly I watched his free skate every single day for a week. I was so excited for it. <laughs> but it was the first time I think he'd really not just skated and competed, but really performed. And he smiled in his performance and he just had such joy in skating. And he just looked like at his, I think it was his quad Lutz and I started crying. I was like, I love you. You're so great. <laughs> and like, I'm on the phone with my mom. I was like, <laughs> she's like, are you okay? I'm like, no. And like, just to be able to see him put all the pieces together and to have his Olympic moment that he was supposed to have four years ago and didn't. And it was just to watch him have such a love for his sport and his performance was just amazing. Um, Other highlights for me were um, in men's hockey, watching Slovakia win their first medal, they got a bronze and they were so fucking pumped for it. And they were just like out of their minds Finland won gold for the first time ever, which is crazy. Um, and then when you look at like on the women's side of hockey, um, the gold medal match between the United States and Canada had over three and a half million views in America alone, which the only thing I think in the last um, it's that beat that number was like the game five Stanley cup final. <laughs> um And considering on the East Coast, that game started at 11 o'clock at night is incredible. Like those are incredible numbers. Um, And just like some countries that are have been in the that haven't been in the Winter Olympics before, like Australia had their first curling team. And, you know, you saw the return of um, Jamaica bobsled and just like a lot of countries who hadn't had athletes in the Winter Olympics before um, was really exciting to see. It's um it's interesting you mentioned Nathan Chen there and you talked about that joy just the joy of competing mm-hmm. and that's something that I really noticed with this Winter Olympics in particular and I don't know whether it's something to do with the fact that it's kind of post 
well, not post COVID, but kind of post a lot of the COVID restrictions. Um, but there was just, you know, a lot of kind of athletes who were just really, really happy to be there and competing. And there was a lot of, particularly in the, um, in the snowboarding and the skiing. And I don't know whether it's to do with just those, you know, events or the nature of those events, but particularly in the women's events, just athletes just celebrating each other. Oh. Yeah. They were just celebrating so each fast. other's success. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was really lovely to see that. I think that was kind of one of the, the things that really stood out for me anyway. Yeah. When um, Nick Baumgartner and Lindsay Jacobellis were in their ski snow cross or the mixed snow cross race. And I'm obviously like two feet from my television, like screaming. <laughs> and, but to watch Nick cheer for Lindsay, like as she was snowboarding was just like, and you could see like the other athletes were like looking at him and he's like losing his mind and I'm losing my mind. And I was like, yes, we're in this together. And, and she's just rushing it. And she has such a strategic, like technical race. And it just like, but to see him be so excited for her was like, yeah, like, I think you're right. Like there's so many, especially I think in snowboard that there's such a community and they're so supportive of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when Sean White came off of his, half pipe for his final run and all of the athletes were there waiting for him yeah. like, and he starts crying and I was like I'm crap like it's a mess but it was so great to see these it's so awesome to see these athletes support each other and it's like this is what the Olympics are for absolutely my uh, my other favorite moment I don't know if anybody saw this was uh, John Salinan the Finnish uh, I think it yeah it was snowboarding was it snowboarding or was it skiing in the half pipe, um, who crashed into a cameraman. <laughs> um, which was which actually, you know, it's, it's quite an impressive feat to be able to do that. You know, all the space that you've got to land, <laughs> land on a cameraman's head is actually quite impressive. Um, but that was that was a moment for me. But I, I enjoyed watching the big air as well and uh, Su Yuming. Uh, on the, the, the snowboarding big air. I just kind of watching it open mouthed draw on the floor. Like, how are they doing this? I'm pretty sure I was like, are they going to land on the moon? Like, what is. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can't like, even imagine. But it was like every single time, every single jump. Like, <laughs> yeah. just as they're about to land, I'm thinking, they're not going to land that. There's no way they're going to land that. Oh, they've just landed it. Oh, it's fine. Yeah. Like with these, like yeah, with these, and they fine. just like keep going. I think I would turn into just like dust, but it's amazing. They just land as if they landed on a pillow <laughs> and there they go. And it's really unbelievable. But in, in terms of um, moments of the games, we can't really not talk about Camilla Valieva. Just to, just to give a, a bit of background, Russia is already barred from international sports competition until I think the end of this year. Uh, under 2022. So Russian athletes are competing under the banner of the Russian Olympic Committee, which is entirely different and not Russia at all. The Russian Olympic Committee is definitely, definitely not just Russia. (laughs) Completely different. Anyway, um, (laughs) but 15-year-old Camilla Valieva, 15 years old, she helped the Russian Olympic Committee, not Russia, to win a gold medal in team figure skating. And then everything kind of just unraveled from that point on. So she tested positive for a banned substance before the games, uh, but the test was only reported during the games, 
literally about an hour before the medal ceremony where she was about to get the team gold. So she was suspended by the Russian anti-doping agency, then unsuspended the day after, uh, and then all sorts of shit kicked off. So WADA, the um, uh, doping associate, what's it? World, World Anti-Doping anti- Agency. Anti was the word I So WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, and the International Skating Federation, and the International Testing Agency, uh, acting on behalf of the IOC, all appealed to the Court of Arbitration for Sport to have the suspension reinstated. But they cited special protection for minors, because she was only 15, uh, and the fact that there was a delay in the the test reporting. uh, And they said that there was a risk of causing her irreparable harm by preventing her from competing. So she was allowed to compete in the individual figure skating. um, But the decision was made that until the whole situation was resolved, there would be no medal ceremony for either the team event uh, or for the individual event, if she finished in the top three. It's getting really complicated, right? So in the individual event, she ended up first after the short program, but then just came undone like you wouldn't believe in the uh, in the free program. So she fell several times, was visibly upset during the um, during the performance, and it was it was genuinely quite difficult to watch. Um, there's a lot to process there. Uh, 15-year-old, suspended and unsuspended, shadow of a drug scandal, knowing that even if she won, there wouldn't be any ceremony for her or for anybody else. So, you know, my, my question at the end of all that is like, what the hell are we supposed to make of all of that? I mean, do you want to start with the individual? Do you want to start with the system? I mean, there's like so many, there's, there's so much, hmm. there's so much to unpack with this whole thing. The ladies free skate was maybe the saddest I've ever been watching the Olympics. Truly devastating to watch, to watch her fall apart and to then as you know, the other skaters are finishing and you've got uh, uh, Alexander uh, Trusova who ended up finished finishing second, throwing a full-blown temper tantrum, like, because she thought she should have won and screaming, I'm never going to skate again. I hate the sport. And like being chased around by her coach, I try, but like, if she could have flung herself on the floor, I think she would have. Um, and then you have Anna Sherbakova who won, who was obviously the favorite actually, because she's the reigning world champion. And she's literally sitting all by herself having just won the Olympics, like, I don't know what to do with my hands. Like <laughs> nobody was around there to congratulate her. Like Carrie Sakamoto who finished in third, like gave her a hug. And she's just like, I guess I won the Olympics. Like it was just like, I felt bad for every single person involved in this. And like, to have, you know, looming over them of like, we're not even going to have a ceremony. Like if, you know, Valieva is in the top three is like, so now you're going to rob everybody else of that experience. And what is insane to me is like, when you look at like the decision of like, yes, no, she can't skate. Yes, she can't skate. Like, not only did you take like the weakest possible position, but you actively made the situation worse because now you've said Mm. it's totally fine to dope a 15 year old because 
it's not up to her because the the problem ultimately is that they know how to punish an athlete. They don't know how to punish the system. And the system is really what's the problem here. I feel like every adult in this situation failed everybody that I think that's what, I mean, I work with 18 to 22 year olds and they are technically adults and also hmm, debatable. Um, and you know, I just, I, th- I think about, you know, a 15 year old that, you know, we talk about with any kind of doping, right? You're responsible for what you put in your body, but then also like a 15 year old and having to be the face of a bunch of poorly acting adults, right? Like she's the face of that. And so she bears the wrath at the same time, whether or not you have compassion for her, she still bears the wrath of it, which is completely unfair to a developing young adult, you know, child, emerging adult. And, and for me, that was the tragedy. Like the, the sport thing, sport matters, all of this matters and, and it is important and I'll never downplay it. But like, we're talking about the, we are talking about the life and well being of a kid. And to put her in that position of, if you do well, then these other people get punished because of you. And if you Mm. don't do well, you're going to be an embarrassment and you're an example of why we shouldn't do this. And so like the weight of the world was put on the back of a 15 year old who, and I don't want to say nothing was her fault because I certainly, I don't know any circumstances or details. However, every adult in her universe failed her over and over and over to get her into a position that she got into. And then everybody, every adult in the Olympic stage failed her. And I think it was just like, if you could take all of the bad options, like Leah said, if you could take all of the bad options and do them at once, like that's what happened. Like, what are all the worst things we could do? Let's do one and then take that one back and try a different worst option. And, and so I think that's the tragedy is, you know, I don't know how this doesn't affect her for the rest of her life. Um, you know, that, that these things affect someone's trajectory and emotional development and growth for the rest of their lives. I mean, when you look at the uh, Itiera Tutabritzi, her coach, like it's this open secret in figure skating that this woman is a monster and that she's essentially like the wood chipper of coaches. Like there's a, they're all one and done's they, everybody talks about the Etieri expiration date that, all of her athletes, they they retire because they're injured. They retire because they have an eating disorder. They nobody makes it past the age of eighteen. That and it's so highly unusual. And yet, all of them are world champions once. All of them are Olympic champions once. You know, I was reading an article about um, Evgenia Medvedev, Medvedeva, who came out of her um out of her her club in moscow and so left to britzi went to train with brian orser in canada and was literally like i had no idea coaching could be like this it was like a world changing viewpoint he had he connected her with um a dietitian so that he could she could deal with her nutrition issues she was like my body is now athletic it is strong I don't feel tired anymore. I don't like she, the women, ladies figure skating in Russia is so prestigious and it's such, so ripe for abuse because these girls are so vulnerable and 
then you look on top of everything that in 2020, the ISU voted Itiri Tabritzi the coach of the year. Like, what are we, what are we doing here? Message said. Got it. Totally got it. Winning is everything. I do not give a shit about these girls' lives Mm -hmm. and disappear and nobody will talk about them or think about them ever again. And you look at, you know, women in in the United States who are competing, you know, 20, 22, 25, like they're, they're able to have lengthier, you know, careers. And what's frustrate, what frustrates me the most is that all these conversations end up being like, well, maybe figure skating is bad and it's not (laughs) the sport, right? Like Mm -hmm. it's there, it is possible to have healthy athletes compete and have long careers if they're managed appropriately. So one of our colleagues, and I don't know if you, I don't know if either of you saw this, but one of our colleagues, Mona uh, Arvin and Barrow, uh, wrote a, a fairly impassioned Facebook post about this. Um, she said, yesterday was a sad day for figure skating. The words I would use to characterize the three Russian skaters are hopelessness, loneliness, sadness, and grief. Um, she talked about some of the things that you just talked about earlier. Trusova having a you know a tantrum but not winning because she felt she deserved to win after landing five quads. Uh, Sherbakova sitting by herself after winning, just kind of not really knowing what to do with herself. Um, and Valieva coming off the ice after just what was a devastating collapse in performance. And like I said, you know, it was hard to watch with the coaches saying, you know, why did you give up? Explain it to me. You know, 15-year-old kid. So, you know, uh, Mona went on to say, uh, Valieva should never have been allowed to skate, period. Doping or not, none of this should have happened. Children should not be allowed to compete in women's events. And I... I, I wonder what you think of that, you know, given what you just said about figure skating is not bad, it's the system that's bad. Like, I wonder what you think about that. Children should not be allowed to compete in women's events because I don't know. I, I don't know what I think about that because then you you wouldn't have some of the, like, amazing stories that we do have. You wouldn't have, was it Chloe Kim? Um, uh, Tom Daly was kind of 14 when he first went to the Olympics, you know? So I, I, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts well, on Terrell that. Terrell Pinsky won the gold medal right. when she was 15. So, yeah, thoughts. I don't. I. I don't think age is. I think we're. I think we're hung up on the wrong thing. I don't think that age is the thing that defines whether this is healthy or competitive for this age group. I think it's the health of the sport. I think that if a fifteen-year-old can go to the Olympics in a healthy well-managed way, then I don't think it should matter. But as it stands, that argument has some feet or teeth, whatever the saying is, has some teeth to me that, um, <laughs> I don't think it's feet. I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, <laughs> oh God. Um, I'm really good at sayings. Uh, I'll just try to think of some more, um, as we go. But I think that, you know, that argument holds if things continue how they are. I don't think I don't think as it stands, much of elite sport in terms of Olympic sports at the Olympic level is safe for 15 year olds. Mm -hmm. I think that if we can hold coaches accountable, if we can hold governing bodies accountable and and we can develop young people in a healthy way, which can be done. I very much I've seen it. I have I have been a part of it. 
I think it can be done. It's just not done on a, a widespread level or maybe not as visibly um, mm. because we still have so many old school coaches and old school people in charge. Um, we're seeing the tides turning, but it's not there yet. So I don't know that age is the issue. I think the health of the sport is an issue. And currently, I would agree it's not safe for a 15-year-old, but I think it can be. I think where a lot of the difficulty really comes through is that like you can have these elite athletes where their sport development is separate and apart from their cognitive development, right? That you have to remember that you're still dealing with children. And I think a lot about, you know, like Chelsea said, like I have been a part of, you know, when you can have a youth athlete and they can be really successful and they can have fun and they can be, they can, you know, have both of those things at the same time. Um, but I also, you know, see things like major juniors hockey, where, you know, these young guys are put in this professionalized system at a very young age. And there are an, any number of abuse scandals in that system. And we have to sort of prioritize um, you know, I think sometimes we forget because they are so skilled as athletes, we have this a different expectation of them as human beings. Yeah, I think it, just to, to finish off uh, Mona's uh, quote that she wrote on Facebook, she, she also said, there's no doubt in my mind that the well-being of these children is not has not been at the center of decision making by those responsible for their personal or athletic development. Their mental and physical well-being is sacrificed, is being sacrificed by those who should have protected them. We have to do better. And she's absolutely right. We we have to do better. Just pause while uh, Leah answers the phone now. Sorry. <laughs> so you were interrupted by a train in the first I know. Episode. I'm the fucking worst. I thought maybe since I was gonna be in my office, like who I don't know who's I don't know who's calling me. <laughs> Leave me alone. Uh, you're listening to 80% Mental with Dr. Chelsea Day and Dr. Leah Washington. And we're just talking about the Winter Olympics and all of the stuff that happened, really. Um, what else? What else? Can I take one step back yeah. with, and talk about figure skating for a hot second? Yeah. Because I do want to address one other thing that we do not talk about in terms of when we talked about the court of arbitration for sport versus WADA versus the IOC. So WADA was begun at the behest of the IOC because they wanted to have a separate entity, mm -hmm. right? Which t makes total sense. However, um, <laughs> there, so there's 105 members in the IOC. The executive committee for WADA has 12 members and the, um, Court Arbitration for Sport, I think, has 21. Of the 21 members of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, three of them concurrently sit on the IOC. And of the 12 members of the Executive Committee on WADA, five of them are concurrently sitting on the IOC. So you cannot tell me that these are independent actors when there are so much overlap. And I get that it's a small community in terms of like, 
governance in elite sport and like there's going to be overlap, but maybe you shouldn't be sitting on all of them at the same time. Like, I don't, I don't know how you can be objective and I don't know how you can have any credibility when you have people who are advocating for both organizations. That's a huge problem in the system. I mean, I think it's just, it, it's further evidence of, you know, the whole, that it's the, the system is part of the issue, that it's not just on the individual skaters level. It's not just on the individual gymnast level. It's not even just on the individual coaches level that you have to really look at, you know, who is making these decisions and who, you know, when we talk about like the adults in charge, like when we're talking about the coaches and we're talking about the staff and we're talking about the organizations in charge of whether it's the USOC, the IOC, Rusada, or whoever, that, you know, it's, I can imagine that it would be really hard to be objective if I am both on the court arbitration of sport and on the IOC. And there are too many conflicts of interest um, to have a lot of credibility. Um, and I should also say that if you, if anybody really wants to have like a full blown rundown of, um, just sort of the whole figure skating mess and to Britzi and, and her long history, um, there's a podcast called burn it all down. And they did a great episode, um, sort of like, uh, illustrating just how far back her, um, in all of the gymnast or gymnast, Jesus, um, skaters that, uh, have been impacted, um, by this, by this coach. So I would recommend listening to that episode as well. Okay. Well, we'll, uh, we'll throw a link to that in the, uh, in the description for this episode. So if you're interested, you can find that on the website, 80percentmental.com. Uh, but what do you think? What do you think about the whole Camilla Valieva situation? Leave us a message and comment on the website or you can tweet us at epm podcast uh, or you can follow us on instagram at 80 percent mental uh, i'm here with dr chelsea day and dr leah washington for the super special winter olympics review or whatever it was that i called it i can't even remember um okay so what else what are the big stories are there what, what else can we talk about so you want to talk about michaela Schifrin's? do that well i i like i say i sort of missed that story. So you'll have to fill me in on what happened with that one. So Michaela um, was one of the huge favorites She to win a whole bunch of medals. She competed in six events. She didn't medal in any of them. Um, in the prior four years of her career, she had three DNFs, did not finish. Um, and then she had three in 11 days in Beijing. Um, and so again, this is like Simone Biles 2.0 of she missed a gate in a slalom event, which is supposed to be her specialty and everybody freaks out and they're like, oh my God. And she, and even her, she was like, you know, I was so confident in my skiing. Um, now I'm questioning everything. Um, you know, her, she said, my entire career has taught me to trust in my skiing if it's good skiing, and that's all I have to rely on. Of course, the pressure is high, but that didn't feel like the biggest issue today. So it's not the end of the world, and it's so stupid to care this much, but I feel like I have to question a lot now. And so 
she's saying that it that the pressure isn't the thing that got to her, but that she missed a gate and she's never really done that before. And now like it throws everything into question for her. And she calls it, um, you know, that she, she doesn't really understand what's going on. She doesn't have any explanation. And even when you watched her in her interviews and she was like really searching for answers, she, you know, they'd be like, what happened? And she's like, I literally have no idea. Um, and you know, and of course, like NBC has done like zero self-reflection in all of this. Right. (laughs) I think it was after her third DNF, Um, and she's just like sitting on the side of the mountain by herself, like for 20 minutes Mm. and the camera is on her the entire time, totally ignoring all of the other people who are currently skiing. Like we're just like staring at this poor woman sitting there, like having like the saddest moment of her life. And it was, it was really interesting in that one coverage obviously hasn't changed, but also that she just didn't know how to cope and didn't know what to do and couldn't fix it. You know, what was really interesting for me about this and it as like, as a sports psychologist, I found it really upsetting as a feminist. I found it even more upsetting is it was certainly the Simone Biles 2.0, but it was also the anti Simone Biles. So when Simone Biles spoke up, stepped out and said, I'm having some difficulties, people were like, F you, we don't believe you, be tougher. Hmm. When Michaela says, I have no idea, I felt good. They're like, nah, you couldn't have, you must not have, what's the problem? There must be something going on. And and it came back to this idea that like we we never believe women and we need an answer and the ones they provide aren't, aren't good enough. And, you know, I think that we like answers and certainly, you know, we have these cognitive shortcuts and we need answers and we need to package things up in boxes. And, and even I, I would love to, to know, you know, what, what was going on and, and it's not, you know, we want an easy answer. Oh, well, she was nervous or, oh, uh, I mean, I read things that were like, but her dad died two years ago. She said she was still kind of grieving. Maybe it's that. And it's like, well, maybe we don't have to like have, this is the answer. Mm-hmm. And I think and we, we all did have it right now. We don't have to have it right now. Right. Like, let people process information. Right. And, and yeah. like, I don't even need that. Like how will my life change if I have the answer? She needs the answer. Hopefully. I mean, she needs some, some way for closure and hopefully she has great professionals or good friends or mentors helping her do that. But I think that's what was really frustrating to me. Even as I was reviewing some of the, the writings today, like in preparation for this is like, I just kind of felt like, are we ever going to fucking believe women and just like let them have their story be their story? Or it's not mental health when you say it is. When you say that it's maybe not, that it must be and you must be lying. And so I think that that was the tragedy of, you know, I, that sucked. She was embarrassed and she handled it with so much more grace than anyone I know ever would have, certainly including myself. And so, you know, we didn't give her enough props for that either of like, you're a freaking rock star. You just had probably the most embarrassing televised 11 days of your life. And you were a star. You took 20 minutes and you sat there and you you got yourself whatever you needed to do. You did it. Even while we had a camera on you, even while you came down the mountain, we're like, Hey, can you explain that? I, I just think that, you know, she deserves like all of the credit and all of the pats on the backs and, and hurrahs and all of that. And we believe you. We believe you. A hundred percent. And the fact that she kept showing up. Yes. And she kept ski, and she wasn't even supposed to ski in the team event. And they put her in at the last minute and she kept 
trying and she didn't go away and she and she could have and people would have been like oh well I can understand why and you know she even at the end she even said like you can fail and not be a failure you can lose and not be a loser you know some days you lose some days you win and you know that she's like it didn't work out for me this time it doesn't mean I'm a terrible skier it doesn't mean I'm a bad person and you know, and she's like, I was, you know, I've been skiing for 12 years. Like I'm going 80 miles an hour down a mountain. Like you think like, like <laughs> that's like going to work out every single time, like, you know, yeah. and, but I think yeah. she, and she even said, you know, I come back because those first nine turns today were spectacular, really heaven. That's where I'm meant to be. And I'm stubborn as shit. And I was like, fuck yeah, girl. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, keep going. Yeah, it's it's funny. It, you, there's a couple of things that you, you mentioned there, Chelsea. You talked about the fact that she was kind of really graceful with the press and took her time and did what she wanted. And you, you know for a <laughs> fact that if she'd come down and she'd been really yeah. pissed off, she would have been, you know, crucified for that. If she'd been really upset, she would have been crucified for that. And mm -hmm. there's a sort of double standard around how we treat men and women in terms of their, their, their responses. The other thing, you know, Leah, you mentioned there about the fact that she'd been skiing for like 12 years and like she's just this amazing level of success. And, you know, I, I, I've been watching um, um, <clears throat> one of the one of the 30 for 30 documentaries on Buffalo Bills. Recently, and I, 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 I watched those Super Bowls. I remember as a kid, uh, staying up late and watching the Super Bowl every year. And um, you know, they, they they lost four Super Bowls in a row. In a row, man. But, but, but they got to four Super Bowls in a row. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, that's just a, such an incredible achievement. But they'll always be remembered as this team that you know, lost four Super Bowls in a row. But, I, you know, what, what it reminds me of is just this idea that w what we really need is just a fundamental reimagining of what success actually is and what success actually means. Um, and, you know, that's why I love what we talked about earlier, just the celebration of just competing that we saw with, with, with a, lot of the, a lot of the sports there. Um, but, yeah, just just thinking about what success actually is and, and longevity and keep it, you know, like you mentioned, kept on coming back, kept on showing up. Like that's, that's awesome. Like, why aren't we celebrating that rather than, you know, trying to get sound bites and stories about uh, uh, mental health, you know? Um, I wonder, I think that that's, I mean, I mean, I think that's a really profound point. Um, and I think that, you know, we've, we've talked over the last, I don't know, five years or so more, more candidly about um, the mental health of Olympians when they get back from the Olympics and how, how poor it tends to be. And I can't help but wonder, like, if that's a culture shift that would change that, right? When we try to think, like, what are the solutions? How do we fix that? How do we avoid that? That if we reimagine success and celebrating what that means that not having our Olympians not return with such a hard crash and letdown because we have defined what success is that the joy of being there, the joy of performing the fun, the success of being this good at what you do, period, full stop. I mean, I can't help but wonder if that in and of itself, that cultural shift would change these mental health crashes that we see post Olympics 
because instead of go there, achieve, win gold, and then come back and nothing matters anymore. You know, if we were able to still bask because that success continues when you return back from the games because it's a, a bigger thing, you know, I can't help but wonder if that's that's one of the major fundamental shifts we need in sport. It really kind of reminds me of um, Dan Jansen, the speed skater, who um, his like was at the top of his game for so long. And just every time he showed up at the Olympics, he would crash out. And like, and it wasn't until I think his fourth Olympics that he, A, finished a race and B, won a gold medal in 1994. And it's like the, the perseverance to stick with it, you know, and especially with the Winter Olympics, I think a lot because this is the only time nobody's out there watching world cups nobody's out there watching you know european championships they only watch winter sports in the winter olympics especially in the united states and so when the all you see is dan jansen showing up every single year and not finishing and failing like what like (laughs) that's your that's what you think of speed skating and that's what you think of this athlete and not to mention the fact that he's like a world champion like multiple years and you know for him, you know, because that's the most visibility you're going to get as a Winter Olympian. No, nobody's out here watching, I mean, other than myself, watching bobsleigh world championships, you know, like every year or the curling North American finals or whatever, you know, so because I do. <laughs> I'm the only person I know who does that. <laughs> um, but like to be to have that as your visible moment is really, really hard. And to continue to show up year after year after year, I think says so much about these athletes that they, this, this is the thing that they're meant to be. This is the thing that they want to do. And this is the thing that they, that they can't not do. So it's, it's an interesting point, you know, because you, you mentioned this idea of this post-Olympic come down, which is a, re- a real thing. You know, the research is out there that, that says this is a real thing. And this can either be like a, a bad experience and messing up with the, the sort of one opportunity or one, I was going to slip into Eminem then. <laughs> this, <laughs> the yeah, the one shot. Um, but either kind of messing up this sort of once in a career opportunity, or it can be the euphoria of actually winning and being really successful and then coming home and that just sort of dissipating away. There's there's, there's numerous examples of athletes with sort of mental health struggles uh, after the Olympics, as as you mentioned. And I guess apart from the whole sort of structural change around what success actually means and how we define it and how sports organizations define that as well, because I know obviously funding is based on medal success a lot of the time and medals are based, you know, decided on fractions of, of seconds and tiniest margins of errors. So, you know, what can we do, do you think, to maybe alleviate some of that, um, you know, other than the kind of wholesale structural stuff, like what can we do to maybe alleviate some of that, uh, the, you know, the post-Olympic come down in, in the first place? I, I wish that I knew that answer. Um, we have been actively <laughs> working on this since the Summer Olympics with our Olympians at Ohio State trying to figure out both both in the moment and also thinking about planning for future classes of Olympians. But, you know, I think I think one thing I've really grappled with is there is an incredibly like hair thin fine line 
between the need to be solely focused on your sport to get to that level and having more expansive concepts of your identity that if your identity is too expansive, you're not going to get there. But if it's not expansive enough, that is where that my whole sense of self is wrapped up in this one thing, whether I'm successful or not, again, whether it's that euphoria come down or the disappointment. And, and I think that that is so hard to navigate. And I think that, um, again, and then we move to structural things, the, the structure is never going to support it, because you do not want to risk them tipping over to the wrong side of that of that line. And, you know, I think that's where we we do a lot of that retrospective work or where I've done a lot of that retrospective work in the last year is, is working on that with our athletes. And it's just so hard to do after the fact. But but we have to acknowledge that, like, you kind of have to do that if you want to get to that level. And so some of it seems like a necessary sacrifice. Um, and I, I have become more skeptical about whether it is 100% fully doable to prevent that. Um, or whether we need to just know what's going to happen and really, really focus on the safety net and the services after the fact. Um, because I think that that just for many people might be the case. Yeah, I think part of it is like, you know, watching like Sean White um, have his like, you know, moment in the Olympics and and really talk about like what's next. Cause of course that's what the, all the you know, you know, interviews are about. So what's next, what are you doing? What <laughs> and the fact, and I, you know, he's lucky he had an answer, you know, that mm-hmm. he has this new company white space that is, you know, going to sponsor snowboarders and, you know, that he has a project lined up, I think is crucially important. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of um, athletes like, um, Mitch Marner, who plays for the Toronto Maple Leafs, has an has an um, an esports company, an esports team, a Fortnite team, or um, you know, similarly, Zach Hyman, who plays for the um, Edmonton Oilers, also has an esports team. He's also a children's author. Um, you know, like they have these, like Chelsea was saying, when you have your identity has multiple facets, like that is a thing that is good. That's what's going to carry you through, and it is such a difficult balancing act of how much of your life can you dedicate to being elite, which is necessary if that's what you want to do, but it really ha- it cannot be the only thing in your life. And, you know, I also think about, you know, Sean White was kind of able, like he didn't podium, but he was kind of able to, he had a good run. Like he, it wasn't, he came in fourth. It's so like he had, he, it wasn't a disaster for him. You know, but and then I think of these figure skaters who they're leaving their sport and it's devastating. And, you know, to have that experience, why? And then there's all of the what ifs of like, why did I spend all my life doing that if it was so terrible to me? And, you know, it's so important to we talk about all the time having a holistic view of athletes and you're not really great at doing that. But I think that I think that's the biggest answer. I think the age piece comes in here too. Sean White is uh, wise and experienced in life. Certainly not old. Uh, I will not call him old. Um, but but there <laughs> is. You better not call him old. Won't do it. Um, there, I don't. I don't want to say a luxury to that, but but a luxury to that. You know, I think that 
you know, my population struggles so much because they're still 18 to 22 year olds and they're having to go back into the college world. And like what I was just at the Olympics and I have to like go to class and like go to regular practice and then good God, 15 year olds, holy shit, like what? And so I think that when we talk about that age continuum, you know, like we did before, that's a huge factor as well, that it's, it's a lot to ask of a 15 or even 20 year old to be thinking about that stuff. It's a lot easier sell for someone who is young, but more well-versed in life. Um, it's a little easier to, to have had the opportunity and have the supports in place to be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about, and sorry to bring up um, for my Ohio state friend, I'm sorry to bring up the university of Michigan. However, I, um, nah, you're, I, I'm a fan of whoever pays my mortgage. Fair. It's valid. <laughs> but you know, the university of Michigan men's hockey team had four Olympians, you know, that on their team, like out of their program. And that is a lot of athletes all on one team. And to have to adjust back to, like you said, going to class, you know, not being like going back to other very successful athletes can be a challenge. And I think part of also, I think of gymnasts who, you know, are able to have collegiate careers after Olympic careers can be really helpful. Um, You know, I've been watching, like, there's so many Olympians competing right now, like Sunisa Lee and Grace McCallum and, you know, Jordan Childs, like they're, they're, and they're having really, most of them are having really successful collegiate careers, but it is a real shift in the type of competition that it is and what they, what they focus on. And, but at least they have that sort of like, they can still be in their sport. And I think for a lot of these sports where like, this is it, like there aren't programs out there, there aren't professional leagues out there. There aren't, you know, there isn't the next thing. The next thing is you got to come up with something. Hmm. Christopher Henriksen and Rob Schenke and uh, and a bunch of other people wrote a a consensus statement on mental health in 2020. And they they talked about exactly the themes that you, you guys are both talking about here. Um, you know, the games and mental health are interrelated because athletes commit wholeheartedly to their Olympic and Paralympic pursuits so that that they're at an increased risk of disappointment and what we call identity foreclosure, which is exactly what you're talking about. The idea that if your identity is tied up in one thing and then that one thing comes to an end, then your whole identity is kind of, well, who who the hell am I? Um, But what they they said, which was interesting, was that the the post-games period is really quite vulnerable because it's not just the athletes who are exhausted, the staff, coaching staff, the psychologists, all of the support staff are also exhausted and sometimes just unavailable. So that proactive work then becomes becomes really important. Um, just to kind of briefly mention another, another study here um, by Holly Bradshaw and colleagues, it was a, a qualitative study with some British Olympians. So just only a, a handful of, of athletes but they've talked about um, wanting wanting to be talked to by former Olympians rather than sports psychologists, and just having that 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 perspective really of, of kind of like you know well, what's it like? What do I do? And sort of having those almost that role modeling, I guess, is um, a, a a way of alleviating some of these some of these issues. 
we had a, a really cool opportunity at Ohio State after the, the Summer Olympics. Um, one of our swim coaches um, is married to a French synchro Olympian. And she's just like this incredible human being. And so when we hosted our first post-Olympic group for our 11 summer athletes, I asked her if she'd come with me. Um, and she doesn't have mental health training. Um, she is interested in maybe doing some different coaching and stuff like that. And I said, I just think you offer more than I do. I offer a really interesting lens and I can sit back and jump in if I need to, but you've been there. Um, and recently enough and to watch them interact with her was, was really profound because she is, she has moved far past the Olympics, um, and, you know, is married and has a kid and, and has, has really been engaging in, non-sport life for, for a long time. And I really do think that's an underappreciated thing. And I think sometimes as sports psychology professionals, we get really threatened by that. Um, but what does this person without training have to offer that I don't? And in fact, quite a lot. And, and I thought we made a great duo where I could jump in to talk about some of the more clinical aspects, but to watch them just relate and connect in a way that I can't fathom as a very mediocre mid-major diver um, <laughs> was was just really cool. And, and I think that had either one of us not been there, the tone of that conversation would have been so much less impactful. And, and it really gave me an appreciation for exactly what you're talking about, Pete, that like, we've got to embrace this holistic approach and in, in our own roles and not being threatened by that as we try to figure out how to manage these issues, that there's, there's room for us all. And in fact, I think we're all necessary at the table if we're going to change, whether we're talking about the culture of, of, 15 year old figure skaters from a, an Olympic committee perspective, or whether we're talking about, you know, boots on the ground when they come home and dealing with mental health is, you know, the conflict of interest stuff. We have to have such a greater breadth and depth of people available um, and working together in those spaces. If we're going to even do more than just be talking heads that lament and complain about these issues, which is one of my favorite pastimes. Um, but if we're going to move into, you know, uh, fixing anything, I think. I'm here with Dr. Leah Washington and Dr. Chelsea Day for the super special, great smashing, super special, <laughs> super smashing, great Winter Olympic review. Um, and we've been talking about uh, the post-Olympic come down. We've been talking about uh, Camilla Valieva and some of our favorite Olympic moments as well. Um, I, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit and talk about success stories and achievement and particularly I guess, thinking about any mental greatness that we've seen on display during these Olympics uh, or kind of use of mental skills that was, that was kind of obvious. Um, what, what, what are our thoughts on that? Uh, Leah, I'll come to you first on that one. I got a couple. I thought you might. <laughs> um, <laughs> so one in particular, uh, Niels Vanderpoel, 5,000 meter speed skating. I just, so he was the favorite going in. He was the world record holder. He'd won every distance he'd ever entered. And so he is in the last, the final pair to skate. And he kind of starts out like super cash, like skating, not a real fast start. He's uh, at the first split. He was 1.42 seconds behind in 13th place. And I was like, um, sir, <laughs> I don't think I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> you're not very fast. Um, 
he kind I mean, he, he most, for the most part, like he kept moving up placements at each split, but with three laps to go, he was two seconds behind first place, which is a fucking lifetime mm. in speed skating. And so three laps to go, he's 2.04 seconds ahead or behind the, the leader two laps to go. Now he's 1.7 seconds behind one lap to go. He's a full second but he's in second place, but he's a full second behind the leader and just dis- like, you can just watch him decide <laughs> to race this race. And like at, th- at kind of like at three seconds and he just like drops the hammer and is like, and takes off. And like, wow. And I, cause I'm like, I'm again, two feet from my television <laughs> <laughs> screaming like, buddy, you gotta go. Like at some point, like you have to start saving. And, and it was just like, all of a sudden he was like, Oh, right. Like I'm currently in the Olympics. So I should probably win this thing and just blows it away and skates to an Olympic record. Like with, and wins by like almost a half a second. And it was like just wild to watch him like shave seconds, seconds off of his time. Truly an impressive like race. The other one that I really would like to highlight is um, the Czech Republic women's hockey team um, and their goalie specifically. This was the first time that they had qualified for the Olympics. Um, Part of this is because they had expanded the um, field from eight to 10, um, which and I think they're going to expand it again from 10 to 12 so they can match the men's side, which will be great. but they they finally had a coach who had done had had a lot of experience in women's hockey, had a lot of NHL experience, a lot of WHL experience, the Western Hockey League in Canada. But one of the things that they talked about um, that when they were setting goals for going to the Olympics, they said, "We know how it feels to lose. That's not going to surprise us." But they've set um, fifteen different goals in qualifying tournaments. Um, and they were, and not a single one of them was to qualify for the Olympics. It was all about, um, what kind of hockey they wanted to play, how they didn't want to have any regrets, how they wanted to, um, inspire women in the Czech Republic, how they wanted to have spectators at their games. Um, and one of their top players even said, um, this quote that I love so much, we want to continue with these goals because when we focus too much on the results, we get tied down and get nervous. Of course, we'd like to get a medal in the games. So my personal goal and our team's goals will be to do our best every day, focus on the process and have fun. The Olympics are new for us. So every game will be the game. I think we can get a medal. We have a very strong team. It may seem contradictory, but I think we will win a medal if we don't focus on it. And I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, it's all of it. It's everything. It's everything that we want. It's a dream. It's a, it's a, yeah. Like I was like reading this article, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is so perfect!" And you know, they beat um, they beat Sweden, they beat China, they lost to Japan in qualifying in Group B, um, and they ended up losing to the United States in quarterfinals. Um, but they only lost four to one, which. In normal hockey would be like, that's kind of a lot, 
But when you look at the shots on goal, the Czech Republic had six shots on goal and they still scored one goal, which is a pretty high percentage. The United States had 59 shots on goal. Oh <laughs> we would have won that game 15 to nothing. Like, 59 shots on goal is bananas. You know, so for Clara Peslarova, who is their goalie, like, to only let four through, like, that, she's a fucking brick wall as far as I'm concerned. Like, unbelievable performance they should have been destroyed in that game and to hold the united states to four goals was a huge accomplishment and i'm just i'm so proud of these women and i'm always excited when when people are in the olympics for the first time but you know to get out of group play and to face you know the the united states team in your quarterfinals and to not collapse i think is amazing psychologist's dream those truly goal setting plan that you just read out there <laughs> right i feel like i need you to send me that specific <laughs> article and i need to forward it to every coach i work with and be like they made the olympics so you should listen to me more yeah yeah that's my new favorite Chelsea, story what about you well <laughs> i that's my new favorite i don't know does it beat that like that's that's like the things that i dream of in my you know before i go to work i <laughs> cut um I I don't know. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be, I think, probably really cliche, but like I this speed skating Aaron Jackson, for someone who picked up speed skating freaking five years ago, like yeah, like that's terrifying. Like, like, like it's not like you don't just skate like in your day-to-day life. So the fact that you can like put on skates and then just like become a freaking phenom and like almost not be there and then just freaking gold like like let's take away every other component of that story and oh my god like it was so cool i leah that's one that i watched i just watched that over and over her face oh just like joy like radiating she looked like the sun. Like I, <laughs> it was um like I've I don't I don't know if I've really ever watched um like speed skating with excitement. Like I I feel like I feel <laughs> weird saying that in front of you, but um like I've watched it. It's fine. It kind of makes me anxious because I just worry about the whole like sliding and, and breaking bones and slicing with like sharp things, and it just makes me very nervous. Um, but that is like I watched it over and over and over and each time felt like just so full of excitement um and again i think it's just this idea that like the idea of the newness and and doing things in theory maybe healthy in the right way and 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 maturity and grit and like i don't know i just felt so excited by that and i don't know what the mental skills were that went into that but i bet they were pretty good and like i just <laughs> felt real fired up by that um i would get so excited and come up again like a different instagram account on my feed i'd be like yeah yes yes i'm excited again um i think that was my probably my my favorite my real favorite like moment if yeah. i where i felt the most joy because that's what it's all about how much joy i feel yeah, and she, she learned to skate, was it four months before qualifying for 2018, right? Is that right? I mean, who yeah. does that? Yes, like what? <laughs> and I think about, like, I think about stories like this all the time of, like, what athletes are we missing out on? Like, so many. You know, like, 
what would have happened if Michael Phelps' sister wasn't on a swim team and he wasn't just at the pool? Or, you know, how many, you know, I was watching curling and they were talking about the Swedish woman and how she went to like the Swedish curling academy for school when she was 13. And I was like, what? You know, we don't value win- winter sports in particular in the United States the same way they do in other countries. And I think we are really missing out. And I like look at a lot of the bobsleigh athletes that we have um, where it's um, they all come to bobsleigh after doing a different sport. And if we had captured these athletes earlier, like how like how much more successful, you know, could we be? as, as a country in terms of like, you know, it's always like, well, I couldn't play football anymore. I couldn't play rugby anymore. Or I, you know, Lolo Jones, I couldn't be a track athlete anymore. I mean, cause all you for Bob's like, you just need to be powerful. Like can you push ahead and play? Perfect. We love it. Like, <laughs> that's what we want. But, you know, and to look at, or, you know, another amazing moment, Alana Myers Taylor of becoming the most decorated bobsleigh athlete, you know, female athlete out there. And, you know, to watch her progress from Olympic to Olympics to Olympics, where she started out as a pusher, moved up to brakeman, moved up to pilot and just, you know, and she came to bobsleigh after being a softball player, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it's, and she's just, she was actually at George Washington when I was at George Washington, she was finishing up her degree while I was there. And, she is truly one of the most focused and positive people that you could ever meet and run into. And just like she, if she sets her mind to something like that's a guarantee thing that's going to happen. And to, so to watch her stick with this sport over time and, and progress to such a degree um, has been, it's just, it's so fun to watch her be successful, you know, over her career. Yeah. I, I kind of think about it the other way, you know, you talk about athletes that we've missed out on, through them just not having that opportunity i think mm-hmm. that i must be naturally incredibly talented at something <laughs> and I, I, just, I just don't know what that thing is yeah, yeah. i just haven't yeah. tried it yet <laughs> yeah i haven't, uh, haven't had the opportunity but yeah we, we we you know you mentioned aaron jackson there and um we talked about deborah thomas earlier the first black athlete to, to medal at the winter olympics back in 1988 not 98 but you know, it, it it is fair to say that the Winter Olympics is a pretty white. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. Not just not just the snow. Um, it, it, my Very, my own yeah. my own personal theory, uh, and I wrote this on Twitter the other day. My own personal theory is that there's enough shit trying to kill black people. We don't need to be throwing <laughs> ourselves down down a mountain at eighty miles an hour head first on a baking tray. We don't need to be doing stuff like that. But <laughs> but. But we have seen something a bit different, though, in this Olympics. Uh, we, we've seen more black athletes competing, and we've seen more black athletes enjoying uh, success. And I, I don't know. I mean, I wonder what's what's happening there. Um, I don't know. Do, do, do you have any thoughts on this? I mean, have you have you have you met America? I mean, I know that we're we're talking internationally, but like you know, obviously, I have a, a very specific view of where I live and when you think about the accessibility um, of a lot of the sports that are in the Winter Olympics and the socioeconomic inequality in our country in particular, and I I believe there as well, um, I think that just the accessibility piece and that, um, you know, there's 
there is incentive to keep people of lower SES out of these sports so that Mm. those in areas of privilege can continue to benefit from the privilege of opportunity for Olympics, for this type of fame and glory. And so it, it behooves those who do have access to maintain the status quo so that they can maintain that, that space, that status, that privilege. And so, you know, I can't help but think that maybe it means like, like a, like a rice grain of progress, right. Of, of, are, are we making things are, are, is someone, is someone making things more accessible? Are we starting to see opportunity grow, um, is that is some of it the visibility, the increasing visibility? Maybe it is the only time that we watch these sports, but you know, is that visibility, that social media access, all of these other ways we can consume this, making it more accessible? But I mean, I think it's it's at least here. I can't help but chalk it up to you know the the inequalities in our country and the benefits you get from maintaining those inequalities in this space in particular. Leah, do you have any thoughts? You know, we are starting to see some change here. We are starting to see kind of more success and more black athletes at, at the Winter Olympics. You know, what's what's behind that? I mean, I think that I think a lot does have to be said for the the athletes who. You know, it sounds really cliche that representation matters, but representation really matters. And so when you have like success begets success. And so when you have people like Alana Myers-Taylor and you have people like, you know, Shawnee Davis, who competed in speed skating for a long time, or, you know, that to have these, it's really important to be the first and it's not, and it's really important to not be the only, mm-hmm. right? That oh, so many of these athletes give back to their communities and, you know, in, in bringing people forward. And I think part of it is that access where a lot of the, um, a lot of the winter sports are really expensive. Like you can't just like pick up a, a bobsleigh (laughs) at Dick's Sporting Goods. Like got one in the backyard, come on over. I'm there, (laughs) you know, that, that the more athletes we have, competing at the collegiate level and the more athletes that we have, you know, when you look at when the United States played Canada in the gold medal hockey final in the women's, every single woman on that, on both teams had played NCAA hockey. And you, you can't get that without that kind of systematic, systematic support, you know, in that you don't have, that you have to have the people who are willing to break the ceiling, but then to pull everybody else behind you. And I think that is probably the biggest strength. And unfortunately, the added pressure of being an athlete of color that you have this placed on you of like, okay, well now you have to be the example of Mm -hmm. what black athletes are in the winter Olympics. And it's a lot of a, it's a huge burden to bear. And I think we have been really, really lucky in the athletes that have been able to achieve that and, and to be successful and then to come back and say, no, come with me. Yeah, I think that, that is, that's such an important point. You know, it's important to be the first, but it's also important to not be the only. Mm-hmm. Um, such an important point. And a shout out as well to Montel Douglas, who was the first woman to represent Team GB at both the Summer and Winter Olympics. 
Pretty impressive. She competed in the bobsleigh. That's amazing. Uh, 14 Truly. years after she went to Beijing as a sprinter. <laughs> um, nice. She finished 17th in the bobsleigh, but in fairness, that's better than most people on the planet could do. Yeah. Um, so, you know. Uh, and she's, yeah. she's also, One of them is in the Olympics and what, the rest of them are exa- not. Exactly, right. And I didn't know this, but she's apparently still the third fastest uh, Brit over 100 meters. Amazing. Wow. Still holds that, um, that, that, that record, which is, which is pretty awesome. I would like to talk about, for a hot second, Ryan Cochran Siegel's silver medal in the men's Super G. Um, he's the only U.S. athlete to medal in alpine skiing. Um, and one of the reasons why I want to bring him up is one year ago... Um, last January, he was skiing in a um, race in Austria in Kitzbühel, which is a really tough course. It's very fast. It's very steep. He crashed um, and had, what did he call it? A, um, I, luck, I was lucky to walk away with nothing more than a minor broken neck. <laughs> what? That was his direct quote. Lucky? Broken neck uh-huh. don't go together. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more impressed with the minor broken neck. Right. <laughs> a minor broken neck. Um, <laughs> a year ago. Wow. And he got a silver medal in the Olympics this year. Almost um, 50 years to the day that his mom won an Olympic gold medal in the slalom. She competed in 1972 in Sapporo in Japan. Um and he, and so I, you know, he wasn't supposed to win anything really. Like he's a very, he's, he's a world, obviously a world-class skier and was really having a, an incredible season when he crashed. Um, but he didn't have like the best training runs, you know, this in this Olympics. And so having a silver medal was like a humongous accomplishment. Um, I was actually watching the World Cup skiing a couple of weeks ago that was at Kitzbühel, um, and they were talking about um, his crash and it doesn't, it, I mean, it's weird because obviously he's going down the hill at a thousand miles an hour and he crashes and he like <laughs> takes out all of the the netting and he's like sitting on the side of the mountain. He's taking his helmet off and, but then you can kind of see like, he's like pointing to his neck. He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh no. And they're like, and they airlifted him off the mountain, which is also wild. Um, but I think, you know, to have such a significant injury and then to come back a year later and win a silver medal is um, a true feat. And I think most of the Winter Olympics, right, is like who can fall down a mountain fast enough or with like the most style. <laughs> like that's like every sport. And, you know, you watch like, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking ahead to like the Paralympics and watching like these visually impaired skiers. And I'm like, I can't go down a mountain with like mm-hmm. both of my eyes. Like what? I, <laughs> amazing and you know and so I just I think to to watch him come back um and to be able to to ski at such a high level only a year later is Mm -hmm. is um really amazing well in fairness it was only a minor broken neck so (laughs) right um (laughs) truly that is that was his quote on his Instagram post Lucky to walk away with nothing more than a minor broken neck, already hoping for my third attempt at co- conquering this beast of a course next year. Wow. Like, mm-mm. Mm-mm. And he's like in a neck brace, like at the same. And I'm like, <laughs> sure. 
Um, I suppose we should we should also probably mention Eileen Gu as well at eighteen, mm-hmm. medaling three oh, three medals, uh, gold in the half pipe in the big air and the uh, slope style silver. Uh, impressive stuff. Eighteen. Incredible skiing. Incredible skiing. What um what kind of interested me about that story as well, and and I don't know whether I'll leave this in this episode or not, um, was obviously she's decided to compete for China. Mm-hmm. Her mother is Chinese, father is American. She grew up with her mother. She's Chinese culture is very big to her, and I, I I don't know how many people sort of were aware of this or noticed this in the press. The whole kind of narrative around her deciding to compete for China. Why would she do that? Why would you possibly want to compete for China? You know, <laughs> like as if it was this like absolute impossibility that she would want to, like she's half Chinese and mother's Chinese. Like, you know, she's grown up around that culture. Like, why is that such a difficult thing for people to grasp that she would want to do that? And it just kind of speaks again to this whole Western mm-hmm. white superiority. People like, do not realize the number of athletes in America who compete for other countries. Yes. Absolutely. Well, because, uh, because patriotism and, um, and worse, right. That Mm -hmm. how could you not want to compete for America? Um, you know, I I think people can't fathom with the, with the amount of perceived energy that we think we put into supporting our Olympians. Right. I think, I think Americans think we back our Olympians, really well. I think that Americans think that we are like champions for our Olympians because we tune in and we throw parties, right? Like I really think that we think that, which we, and we don't do that at all. But if that is true, how could you not want to compete for America? We've got your back. This is great. You know, versus the idea that again, it's maybe not what's best for the athlete in like 90 ways, but I do think it comes back to this. um, I'm going to, I'm just going to say nationalism. We're going to, I'll just leap to nationalism. I think it, I think it's a nationalism issue, right? That, that um, how can you not want to represent the, this great country because this is all that there is and everything else, you know, isn't. Um, and, and it's again, but it's about, we make it about us. I think that's part of the biggest issue with spectatorship period. We make their performances about us instead of appreciating the prowess and the work and the skill that the athletes have, it becomes totally about us. Well, and I think it's really, really interesting to compare the amount of press and attention that Eileen Gu has gotten for wanting to compete for China versus Gus Kenworthy, who is competing for Britain. And he's already (laughs) competed in multiple Olympics for the United States, but his mother is British Mm -hmm. and he wanted to honor her and no one has said anything about it. And so I think there is this, it's one thing to compete for Britain and it's a wholly other thing to compete uh-huh. for China. Yeah. can't imagine why. Yeah. I don't, I can't, I can't spot a difference. No, I mean, I couldn't even <laughs> begin to think what that might be. But speaking of Gus Kenworthy, I, I don't know if you saw him fall, uh, fall fully on his ass in the half pipe. Like, yeah. I don't know how he got up from that <laughs> because that looked that like was, it. That looked like it. That was rough. Yeah. Just a minor broken ass. Um, <laughs> oh God, I'm such a baby. There's no way. There, I, if I broke a pinky, I'd be like, "Nope, I'm retired. It's been nice. I broke my pinky and it's swollen. I, I'm going home. Put me on a plane, please." Mm-mm. 
So this is our super smashing great Winter Olympics review episode. And I'm here with Dr. Leo Washington and Dr. Chelsea Day. Uh, and we've talked about the Winter Olympics and all Winter Olympics stuff. You can go back and listen to it. I don't know why you'd be starting to listen now, like an hour and a half in. But if you if you are, then go back and listen to the rest of it. Um, I don't know what I'm talking about at this point. It's late. Um, okay, so last thing we're going to talk about then. Um, coolest Olympic sports, Winter Olympic sports. Uh, let's start with that. What's the coolest sport in the Winter Olympics? Slope-style snowboard. Just you can't not be super cool and be a slope style snowboarder like they they're they all look awesome they're totally chill they're all friends like they're doing rad tricks off of the pipes they're throwing you know unbelievable like sick ass tricks off of these hills and they just like land and they're like yo what's up and i'm like yeah i want to hang out with you guys like, and the wild thing is like every story of every athlete is either this kid just got his driver's license or this kid had to miss Pyeongchang because he was in a coma. And you're like, <laughs> a minor coma. When did a puncture long stop anyone? Like, they just seem like such chill, ama- like, cool people to hang out with like yeah. i just i want to go be with them i want to have a beer i want to like kick back i like, can't they have just beer what, they're 14 they just got the driver's license <laughs> well it's fine yeah i mean it, it's hard to look past that because that is that is pretty cool um but i actually quite like the the skiing the slope style skiing and the um the snow cross as well yeah because they're just it's just like a fight at 80 miles an hour it's awesome um (laughs) chelsea what about you what's the coolest winter olympic sport all of them where you fly off of a big hill and do a bunch of flips and land like like the all of the varieties of that like as a former diver i feel like um i jumped on a diving board and then i landed in water and then I like floated to the side and like climbed out the stairs. And certainly, you know, if you land wrong off of any diving board, it can be like hitting cement, but it's not actual cement. It's like not actual firm ground. It just feels like it. So I am just in awe because I can't, I also can't wrap my head around like how you learn it, how you train for it. Like I've watched the training of like into the squishy stuff. And I, it just blows my mind that like you're willing to just fling it and then do these things that I did like a fraction of off a diving board, but then like you land on your feet and then you just take your skis off or your snowboard off and then you just walk over and have an interview. And I can't wrap my head around it. Like a lot of the rest of the stuff, like I can at least fathom what some of that might be like. Maybe I just, I'm just in awe every time. I think it's magical. It's just, it's entrancing. And so anything where you fly in the air and do the flips, whether we're talking half pipe or off, any of the jumps, like I just, all of that is incredible. Yeah. It was like I said before, you know, like every single time, the fraction of a second before they land, they're just thinking they're not going to make that. They're and dead. then they'll just like whip their legs around and just like land and be like, yeah. Oh, they're about to die. Oh, I guess they're yeah. fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's the uh, silliest sport in the Winter Olympics? Because let's face it, right? 
I mean, okay, all, all sport is ridiculous when you break it down to its component parts. Okay, a hundred percent. Right, but what silliest sport in the Winter Olympics? Because there's a there's a, there's some silly ones. My first thought was short track speed skating, especially the relay, because it's just chaos. Yeah. What is happening? Who thought this was a good idea? Like, <laughs> you know, Chelsea, you were talking about like people wiping out mm-hmm. skate blades, heart rate, nightmare, <gasps> nightmare scenario. I also think um, this is probably not going to sound great, but like ice dancing when they have chosen rhythm dance as their uh, <laughs> rhythm of choice. <laughs> um, and they're dancing with a street style music. And it's a whole lot of very, very white people <laughs> <laughs> making some real interesting choices. <laughs> I cannot yeah, get behind okay. Canada's um, orange sherbet colored costume. <laughs> it was it was a real aggressive orange, <laughs> <laughs> and it hurt me. <laughs> Fair enough, <laughs> uh, Chelsea. What's what's the what's the silliest sport in the? I, uh, I feel like this. I feel like this might be a hot take, but mm-hmm. um, the biathlon. Okay, so, like, I just, okay. what I picture in my mind is because, like, when if you watch it, like, it takes a while. And, like, it can be, like, it can be, like, I, I would say, like, a little more on the boring side um, for, for myself. And, but I picture, like, in their head, like, gotta get to the, like, gotta get my gun around. Like, it just feels, like, really random. Like, like it feels very old. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like a million years ago, like when you had to like race, I don't know, for food or something. I don't really know, but this is what happens in my head. And I just picture like it's 2022 and like you can just order food on DoorDash. And so like I don't need to like ski through the woods and beat the guy to like kill the fox to eat for dinner. It just I just can't. They're not shooting elk. Well, they aren't. They aren't. But didn't isn't that where it had to come from? Like they're just I don't know, like. I just picture like backwoods Ohio and like people training and like they put up the, the dad went and like put the targets up throughout the woods and like they're across from the deer stands so that, you know, when they deer hunt, it can be some of the same areas. And so I just, for me, it's just kind of silly in like 2022 as I know, like there's the historic and the spirit of the games, but that's why it's my silliest. Cause I just get in this whole, like, what are we doing? Like, okay, no, this well, is practical. That's how they train. That's why the, the Norwegians are so successful because they come over to Ohio. And I always wonder, you know, they have the big Norwegian flags in the back of their snowsuit. And I could never figure out, you know, who they were, or why they were here. Um, I can't believe that neither of you have mentioned the luge, which is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life, only topped by the double luge, which is ridiculous. <laughs> it's ridiculous really bonkers i mean you know all olympic sports are incredible and all the olympic athletes are amazing but the double Certainly. is silly I'm sorry. <laughs> um, what, <laughs> what um what sports would you like to see improved and how would you improve them there's a place here we have a brewery in columbus ohio um that has um curling 
And around the edges of the curling um, are igloos that you can sit in and eat and drink and be warm. But the, um, the curling, instead of stones, they use um, empty half kegs. And then they have these little tiny, those little like what are the pony kegs. Um, and they use those as the the rocks. So I think that would be an interesting way to improve it in the Olympics um, because it seems to work really well here at the brewery. My vote is to add the sport of dog sledding. I think if we could have horses in the Summer Olympics, I don't see any reason why we can't have dogs in the Winter Olympics. That is a fair point. I think we, uh, if the race was a week long, we could check in with the racers. We could have profiles of all the dogs. Mm. Want to increase viewership to the Winter Olympics? Guaranteed win. Can I tell you an interesting Olympic fact? Please. Dog sledding was part of the Winter Olympics at one point. Gotta bring it what? Back. Bring it back. And I can't remember because I, I was looking at stuff the other day and I can't remember whether it was just a demonstration sport for one year um, or whether it was a full a full Olympic sport. But th- it, I'm sure it was only for like one Olympics, but they did have dog sledding in the Olympics. And I am fully on board with that idea. <laughs> I think that I, would be incredible. There's no literal no downside to it. I think we can have. I would follow that shit constantly. Obviously, you'd, you'd follow any new edition constantly. I know, but this was <laughs> Yeah, you would. Um, I, I'd like to see. Um, I, I'd like to see the uh, the slope style skiers go through um, uh, rings of fire. Ooh, I'd like, oh, I'd like them excellent! To add that. uh, That's I cool. Have to. You could do a whole Game of Thrones fire and ice situation with that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think I think we I think we might be done with our super smashing great amazing Winter Olympic review episode. What do you guys think? It was the most professional episode we've recorded. I, I think so. Obviously. So we're um, we are out of time for this episode. So it just remains for me to say a huge thank you to my guests, Dr. Leah Washington and Dr. Chelsea Day. So thank you both so much for joining me again uh, for an episode of 80% Mental. Always a pleasure. Um, We've talked about a bunch of stuff in this episode. Uh, We talked about our favorite moments of the games uh, and obviously spent a little bit of time talking about Camilla Valieva and uh, Michaela Schifrin. Some of the issues around uh, identity of Olympic athletes uh, and why Having more of a broad identity, I suppose, is such an important thing to avoid some of that post-Olympic come down uh, and some of the mental health issues that, that athletes might experience. Uh, we've talked about success stories, about black athlete success in particular, and we've talked about how to improve the Olympics um, with dog sledding. So I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. Um, I always mess this bit up. <laughs> We've gone for like almost two hours and I always mess this bit up. Click like and subscribe and smash that like button. That's the one. Do you you want to have a go at doing it? Uh, Follow us on all social means and tell your friends and pals and smash that like button. Smash that like button, yo. (laughs) That'll do. Uh, 
listen and subscribe to all of the 80% mental episodes. I didn't even tell you my amazing way to fucking fix the Olympics. Oh. What's your, ways, what's your amazing way to fix the Olympics? Here's my solution to the Olympics. <laughs> Have one location. All Olympics will be held at said location from here until the end of time. Summer and winter. So now you only build one Olympic venue. Mm-hmm. You don't have to ruin cities. You don't have to have countries go into millions of dollars of debt. You don't have to displace indigenous peoples <laughs> and homeless populations. So you have one location. All you have to do then is then upgrade instead of rebuild. You can use it for world championships. You know, it's going to be in Lausanne, Switzerland, because Switzerland is a neutral country, so we can get rid of all that nationalistic bullshit. It is in the Alps and on a lake. You can have winter, you can have sailing, you can have rowing. It's also the headquarters of the IOC. And this way you can also have smaller countries still be the host of the Olympics without having to come up with all of the infrastructure. So you could have like Thailand could host the Olympics or like South Africa or, you know, someone who's never going to host the Olympics because they can't build all the venues. The venues are there. We just all go to the same place. You only have one Olympic village you have to deal with and you still have your hosts. They can show off their culture, their art, their um, costuming, whatever, but we don't have to continually destroy cities. We don't have to rebuild. We don't have these buildings that never get used again. And whose ego is that good for? Isn't this all an ego play? Nobody gets to have their ego stroked if they can't destroy their country to show off for. Well, I'm not saying there aren't barriers to implementing this plan. (laughs) This plan, if implemented, will fix a lot of problems. Sounds cool. America will never agree. That might be the single greatest idea I've heard about anything ever. I I have been thinking about this, obviously, for the vast majority of my life. Of course you have. (laughs) Of course you have. But how cool would it be to have an Olympics hosted by Haiti? Like, I want to see these, like, tiny little countries be able to show off their cool shit that they're never going to be able to show off because they they're never going to be able to host the Olympics. But if they didn't have to come up with all the capital and they didn't have to come up with all of the infrastructure, because it's already there. It, it, if we want to expand participation and we want to expand people getting into the Olympics and we want to, you know, allow, I don't know, any of the countries in the continent of Africa. Oh no, I'm fully aware of like, there are some things that we'd have to work out. <laughs> it was like a couple. Sounds really cool. I I would go to them. I would. I would too. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the ending bit again because I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that bit in because that was awesome. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, well, one. So episode. you're welcome. You're yeah, welcome for solving you. the Olympics. <laughs> thank you. Um, I don't know why I'm thinking you. They're not my Olympics. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, that's that's pretty much all we've got time for in today's episode. So thank you so much uh, to my guests, Dr. Chelsea Day. Thank you for coming back again on to 80% Mental. Always a pleasure. And Dr. Leah Washington, thank you so much for suggesting the episode in the first place. <laughs> hey, man, I'll force the Olympics on to anybody. <laughs> 
Um, I hope you've enjoyed what you've listened to today. And if you have, you can listen to all the other episodes and subscribe at 80percentmental.com. Leave us a comment at EPM Podcast on Twitter or at 80percentmental on Instagram. Like, share, tell your friends, all that good social media stuff. And I will see you next time. Well, I won't see you. We've been through this. It's a podcast. <laughs>